Uh, coming to you live from the Ditch Diggers Manor screening room, it is the Ditch Diggers with guest host Cameron Hurley, guest guest host Margaret Dunlap, and Mer Lafferty in Ditch Diggers Season 8, Episode 16. Ditch Diggers appear and ain't no wannabes here, with some not so nice advice for your writing career, to be clear. Will be pulled, but the punch may be spiked. How they like before they get on the mic. To my left, we got the mighty Mer Lafferty. And if I piss her off, believe me, she'll come after me. And her co host, Matt Evan Wallace, on the right. Yes, she may be half as hype as she can take him in a fight. So settle in, folks, buckle in and boot up. Time to meddle in a way to make your writer shut up. It's hard work, but the perk is that it's fun and exciting. Facebook will still be there when you're done writing. Ditch Diggers! So, hey, Cameron. Hey, Margaret. What's going on? How are things? We're ditch diggers this week. It's after dark. There's booze. I can't be responsible for anything. That that sounds fair. It's <laughs> digging every week, Mer. That's that's how the ditches get dug. Exactly. Yep. Yep. One ditch at a time. <laughs> that's right. One ditch at a time. <laughs> Best um, advice you're going to get on this whole podcast. All right, you're done. <laughs> That's all we got. One ah, at one at a time. There we go. Yes, exactly. Um, so uh, if you were watching last month, Cameron and I were on the show and talking about that we got on the, it kind of went to the topic of Hollywood and we were talking about what we understood about Hollywood money, which was what we had experienced, but not much else. And then we were kind of wander wondering, and Margaret, uh, Cameron's just like, why don't we just invite Margaret on? Because, you know, Margaret's a Hollywood person and, and scriptwriter and knows all of this money stuff and is magical and stuff. And so we got Margaret back on the show. Very, very happy to have you. Um, I, right, I introduced this to the chat, but not to the actual recording. Uh, if you're new to Margaret Dunlap, um, She's worked on uh, Dark Crystal, um, uh, Middleman, a lot of other shows, and is a short story writer, and has an upcoming short story in Apex, and I know Margaret through prose, because we were on the um, Book Burners. See, I want to say Ditch Diggers, because it's got the exact same tone, yep. Book Burners project together, and yep. um, so Margaret and I have been friends for a while, and she's so smart. Mm. Thank you, Mer. <laughs> awesome. How was the Writing Excuses cruise? The Writing Excuses cruise was really great. They, uh, I gave like, I did one sort of like workshop presentation slot and they kindly gave me the slot at like the morning of our first day at sea. Oh, when everyone's so fresh and not hungover? Everyone's fresh. Few people are hungover. I can give the presentation and then relax about the presentation because it's already done. And also because I was, I was originally scheduled on the 2020 writing excuses cruise, which did not happen because I'd been a guest host over there in 2019. And so there's sort of the thing of like, is anyone going to remember that I was on that podcast for a season? So it was nice to be able to kind of like reintroduce myself so that people weren't, why is she as an instructor again? Like, 
we're, we're sitting at her table at dinner tonight and what the hell? So, uh, so yeah, it was really nice and the presentation went well. I talked about how we have this illusion that there is a career path in creative careers. Cause like, you know, in fiction, you write some short stories and you get a lot of form rejections and then you start getting nicer form rejections and then you get personal rejections and then you start getting acceptances and then maybe you get nominated for an award and then there's a book deal and then a bigger book deal and then, you know, it becomes a bestseller and they make a TV show and it's like, yeah, everything is great. And the fact is that like most careers don't look like that because, you know, people's careers go in unexpected directions or it stalls out at some point or, you know, not everybody gets to have a, you know, the number of writers compared to the number of bestsellers with TV deals is an enormous <laughs> ratio. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought I was going to take that path. And then um, about 2010 or 11, I realized that I had been building my writing career I just didn't know it yeah. because I had been networking via my podcasting mm -hmm. I just thought I was interviewing people but like I was interviewing people and they were remembering me and suddenly I had a network of writers that I knew and it was I'm like wow if I planned on doing this I probably would have wimped out a long time ago yeah yeah it's like in my talk I walked people through like the you know, from 20 years ago when I started, uh, did the graduate screenwriting program at USC, not a blanket endorsement of film school. It worked out to me. Your mileage may vary. Uh, in fact, it almost certainly will. But it was sort of like, you know, well, you know, if you want to write for animation, spend 15 years knocking your head against various walls. And then it's like, well, well, no, that's not a repeatable approach. It's just the opportunity that I was, you know, I was still on the corner when that opportunity showed up. Um, and, you know, I found the thing that I like doing and that Hollywood would also like me to do. Um, uh, let's check in. How are you, Cameron? Tell me about stuff. What's going on? Oh, I'm pretty good. Um, you know, I, I actually sent the first half of my book to my agent, which was amazing. Right. Yeah. I can't wait uh, for this book, Cameron. I really can't. I know. It's going to, it's going to be one of those ones where it's just like, it better be fucking amazing after three years. I was actually, I was telling some of the folks I work with, I was like, well, it was originally due in like September, 2020. So give me some grace. I'm giving, giving myself some grace. That said, it better not take another fucking three years to write the second half of the book. That's all I'm saying. I gotta get paid. Yeah. yeah. I gotta get paid over here. Um, yeah. I, yeah. And I, so, no, I, no. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Uh, but no, things are good with that. Um, and in fact, it was, it was funny because, uh, you know, working right into this podcast this week, my agent was like, oh, you know, talking to somebody from Disney Hulu and they're on it about Light Brigade again. I'm like, I bet they fucking are. They're always on the Light Brigade. Will they sign a check? No, they will not sign a check. Um, not right now anyway. Cameron's bitter. But we agreed. We agreed after my go rounds with everyone loves Light Brigade. Um, it's it's getting it, you know, the usual. And this is what this is what I, I explain Hollywood to people, Margaret, and you're gonna have to tell me if this is correct or not. Um but I say the the difference is like if you want to sell a novel, you go and you write a novel and you throw it around to a bunch of people and say, hey, do you want it or not? Hollywood is you put together like a little squad. Like a little team. Oh, I got a screenwriter here. I got this novelization thing here. I've got this possible director, this production company. And then we go and pitch it to people. And, and we, we have to get a blowout. They, they have to get blowouts beforehand. 
I heard that. Right. Oh Got yeah. It. Full makeup and yeah, the whole thing. Anyway, but then you go and you and you do the little dance, and it's like, well, okay. Then they say, well, maybe this, maybe that. Everyone says, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but the thing is, like, it's it's all about putting together that team and finding that team. And I know when I talked to you, Margaret, I was like, I'm so frustrated because I'm on these calls all the time with these, again, production companies everyone's heard of, where I'm thinking, oh, this is amazing. It's going to become something. And it's just talk. And I was like, Margaret, why does Hollywood just want to talk so much? And your answer was... <laughs> answer was it's like I mean partially they want to talk to you because they want to figure out what kind of human being you are and it's like are we getting in bed with somebody who is going to you know show up you know right before we start shooting and say you know guys I really just really don't like the way we're going with this and I think we shouldn't do it um I'm sorry which- uh, I'm sorry mm-hmm. I have heard so much about Hollywood assholes who do exactly that and still get paid why don't they want what is the problem with an author doing if they wouldn't listen to anyway? Um, I didn't, do Hollywood assholes do that? I mean, Hollywood I don't know. I've heard they do a lot of things. I mean, it depends on who you are. I mean, but it is like the, um, but yeah, it's just like most people in Hollywood, like most people, most places don't actually want to work with assholes. Like you have to be either, you either have to have a lot of money or be extraordinarily good at what you do to actually survive at, you know, levels of being an evil person, which certainly people do uh, frequently because once they have a level of money and success is when they allow themselves to, you know, manifest the evil that they were trying to keep down for a long time. But like, you know, I have run into... Like, I'm not sure the Hollywood, the Hollywood abusive jerk quotient might be slightly higher than in other businesses, but I think only because of, you know, the possibilities of money and and perceived prestige. Like any Mm -hmm. other business that you can get rich and be an influential person and like get, you know, restaurant reservations and all of that. Like, if that's what you want, Hollywood is a an avenue i suppose you could pursue but like it's probably easier to become a stock trader would be my guess yeah um showing how nothing i know about being a stock trader but that is my impression of how things go anyway Um, i'm sorry i interrupted you just you were saying that that that, this is why they want to talk to writers so right they want to talk to writers but also it's like i when i talk to novelist friends which thanks to book burners and meeting people like you and and max and the other, you know, and Andrea and other people on our teams, like I got, that's how, that was my entree into the fiction side of our business. Um, you know, I hear novels and they're just like, Hollywood, they're just blowing smoke, just constantly. They call you up and they just lie to your face all the time. And I'm like, it's, it's less that than you think. I mean, I'm not going to say that nobody from Hollywood ever just calls you up and lies to your face. Cause I'm sure people have called me up and lied to my face on things. But it's more, it's like, we're so excited about this project. We really want to get it made this year. And they are so excited about this project. And they do really want to get it made this year. And there are just, there are so many things outside of production companies' control, as well as the thing that are beyond your control. I had a project that we were pitching around. And it was a great pitch, a great team. Like, everyone we had attached to it was just, like, 
gangbusters. We went in and like we were pitching to the right executive. Like she got it. She had the sensibility. And she's like, oh, I love this project so much. But she then had to bring it to her boss. And we found out later her boss had been passed over for an internal promotion at the company and was actively looking for another job where he would be, you know, fully appreciated with the title that he deserved. But in the meantime, he was saying no to absolutely everything that came on his desk. And one of the producers I worked with actually were like, why is he, this doesn't make, and so he knew her boss's boss and had to do these like, look, I never go over an executive's head, but also like I felt like we had a really good thing. I don't know why we're getting getting the no here. And the Uber boss sort of said, It's like, I'm gonna tell you the same thing I told everyone else who has called me this week, saying, Look, you know that I never do this, but what the heck is going on at your company? And, you know, by the time that guy moved on, the person who really liked our project had also moved on and the new place she's at has a different mandate and, you know, she can't bring us in the same way. So it's just like, it's just bonkers the number of things that happen and, you know, my coping mechanism is just sort of practicing a certain amount of conscious detachment. Um, I've been writing for a lot of animated series lately, um, some stuff for kids, but also the new Blade Runner, uh, Black Lotus that was out recently. When you ask me for my most recent credit, I could talk about that's probably it. Um, but just Blade Runner, Blade Runner, just most Blade Runner, just Blade Runner. But most of those, most animated work that I've done, I do as a freelancer because that's a lot more common uh, on the animation side than on the live action side these days. So it's like, and I just, I I pitch a story or they give me a story premise and say, hey, can you do something with this? And I write an outline, I write a draft, I maybe write a second draft, and then I send it to the head writer. And just, you know, two years later, I'll get to tune into television and see how it turned out. But I'm just like, I'm going to give you the best script I can and know that I have no idea what's going to happen with it once it leaves my hands. I remember that with Dark Crystal, where it was just like, Margaret, didn't you, were, were we talking about Dark Crystal in Finland and whatever, whatever year that was? And she just like, puppetry takes time. It just it takes a lot of time. Is, yes, no. while it is not, while it is live action, it just does mm. puppets are not fast and they did gorgeous work on that show it turned out so well but like man there there was no you know on the middleman we were writing episodes as we were shooting them so there's very much this sense of the train is heading down the tracks and you know if an episode stalls out at like the outline phase it's like no no we we have to keep it moving because in x days we have to send a script to a director to prep. And then a week later, we're going to start shooting. And this all has to be ready for that. This is the um, Douglas Adams kind of uh, production schedule. That's yeah. how he did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on radio. Just Oh, yeah. But, um, but that's actually, and that used to be standard. Like, that's the way every TV show is made. You're sort of like laying tracks frantically in front of the train as it goes. And... With the with the streamers coming in and with episode orders getting shorter and with, I think some of this is probably lies at the feet of year-round development cycle, just that urgency is like, you'll write all, like Dark Crystal, we wrote all the scripts before they shot a frame of film. Um, 
And then one of the head writers was basically in London doing all the production rewrites as things came up. And it's like, yeah, this is way too expensive. We can't do it. We'll need 15 different versions of the puppet to do this, or we don't have time to do this bit or the, and he was doing all of that. And he did a great job. And, you know, our producing director, uh, Louis Leterrier, who directed all of those episodes, like, I think it was a very collaborative process for them. But it's also like the, well, if we had been doing, we might have known some of these things by the time we got to later episodes and could have saved some of the rewrites. Uh Uh But Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you have a full arc. And when you realize something in the last episode that you want to plant back in episode three, you can still do that because it's not shot yet. I remember uh, quite a few screenwriters are talking about the benefit, quote unquote, of COVID in that well, shit, all we can do is write because it's what we can do with not other people around. And we just have like our our meetings. And and so I think the Duffer Brothers, I remember we're talking about that with Stranger Things, where they were able to write the whole thing and say, oh, crap, we want Eddie to actually be able to play the guitar so that we can have this great cool scene. So I, th- I think it gave a lot more depth, maybe, to some of the some of those ones that maybe they're not because we're used to, to your point, we're used to, oh, shit, we have a weekly deadline and we have to hit it. I know that from again corporate work where it's like, oh shit, every month we do 26 articles. Right. Yeah. And some of that was certainly like in process before COVID, like, uh, Dark oh, yeah. Hill, you know, I, we wrote it in 2017, even though I don't think it came out until 2019. Um, but it was, but COVID was one of those things that accelerated it. And it was definitely when production just shut down you know, development was one of the few things that people could still do. And so you did get a lot of development work, but it did create this kind of mass in the pipeline. And I think we're still kind of sorting through that because, you know, immediately afterwards, it's like, I've got a great new pitch and you're competing with everybody who has a pitch now and everyone who's had a pitch for the last year. Oh my God. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that's like my kid at college who couldn't get a one specific class because the freshman majors had precedent and they couldn't do it during COVID years. So the next year, freshmen and sophomores in that major had precedent for that class. And I don't know if they'll ever take the class because of the, the whole COVID pipeline, as you say. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love how you have the, the, the distance idea mm-hmm. of, of not tying yourself emotionally, because I think writers of prose feel like our industry is the most thankless and the most cruel but every time i feel bad about it i think about hollywood and i think (laughs) this is great because i knew somebody um, we think about you margaret all the time we do we do you are hardcore margaret i don't know how you keep that smile on your face sunshine la sunshine that's all i can exactly because i hard one level of zen i have to say like i was uh on the cruise, I was walking people through, like, this is the story of my career. It's like, and at this point, I am just visiting friends and crying on their front porch because I am crushed by what happened. Talking oh about, talking to you about it now, yes, I understand why it happened, but God, it was devastating at the time. Yeah, um, I remember I was talking to a guy who was a screenwriter who'd written a novel, and he, he just told me, he's like, the novel's coming out. <laughs> I'm like, that's good. Yeah. He's like, He no. said yes. That means it's coming out. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you signed the contract, and so the novel's going to come out. And he's like, yeah, that's not how Hollywood works. <laughs> it's no. like, you know, I, you do this step of the work, and you do this step. And at any point along the way, it could be canceled. So he thought 
during the process of making a book that it would still happen. Like, oh, cover, cover design. Nobody yeah, can agree. Cut it. Kill, kill the whole book. They're going to cancel this book in copy edits. No, I think about <laughs> that story you told me so often because yeah. it's so true. The like, you know, I, I had to learn just celebrate every step because it might be the last one. And won't you feel silly for not enjoying the good part before it all went bad? Well, and even as we saw uh, most famously recently, uh, what was it? Batgirl. They'll even make the whole thing and it'll get buried. You'll never see it. You'll do, and everyone will get paid. And that's why I think as novelists, we're like, well, shit, at least everyone got paid. But you've, you've put your heart and soul and sweat and tears into something that literally no one is ever going to see. And like, ooh, that's a lot. I worked on a show that none of you have ever heard of called Day One. And the reason why you haven't heard of it, because this was like NBC was very excited about the show. The creator was fresh off of Heroes at a time when Heroes was just like peak TV. And he'd created this really cool science fiction story with these, you know, aliens come to Earth and, you know, we have to put together our team that's going to, you know, help. But one of them secretly an alien and what happened on her planet, she's going to try to keep it from happening to Earth. I hope I'm not spilling secrets that Jesse didn't want to get out there, but it was also like 10 years ago. So like, fingers crossed, we're cool. Um, but yeah, it's like, they had hired a writer's room. I was the writer's assistant on that. We had a writer's office PA. We had like a researcher, I think was his title. We had a line producer. The line producer had an assistant. We had a trailer on the Universal lot where we drove into work every day. And like, and, and I joke about like everyone's story about how do you get started in Hollywood contains, well, this never happens, but... And this is one of those this never happens but moments. The show, like, was rolling and they canceled it. We were like, we're sending in outlines and get nothing back. Uh -huh. It was like the project had, because we were supposed to premiere after the Winter Olympics in like 2010. It was like big. And it's like, but we're not here. It's like we had enough momentum Nobody wanted to make the show anymore. There had been enough sort of change in the upper offices. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But we had enough momentum that no one wanted to be responsible for killing us. And, and I used to joke, like, if they didn't need to renew our parking passes every quarter, like, somebody might have forgotten that the show even existed, and I still might be getting that assistant <laughs> salary. Um, yeah. That, yeah, that, this, this feels like probably, Murder on the Orient Express. It's like nobody <laughs> wanted to kill it, so they all had a little hand in killing it. A little hand in killing it. Yeah, I mean, also, that was sort of what it felt like at the time, and I think that was a factor. But also, like, about two years later, Comcast acquired Universal. And that's when we all started stopping and said, oh, this was also making the balance sheets look more attractive yeah. for that merger yeah. to go through, which yeah. is why when they announced Batgirl, I'm like, oh yeah, I've been caught in that account before. That so sucks. And, and again, coming from, right, I do corporate writing as my day job, and I'm just like, that has happened so many times. Where it has nothing to do with you, it has nothing to do with the quality of the work, it is all about the end of the day, oh shit, we have to show the, the stockholders that it, this is an attractive, beautiful, wonderful thing, we have to fire everybody. I had a, I had a place actually that would fire everyone, like every six months would fire a bunch of people and then would rehire them. They would ask you what tour you were on, which is very similar to Hollywood because everyone's a freelancer. 
They're all freelancers for this very reason. Oh shit, we gotta make the look books look good. Ah, oh, everyone's fired. Everyone's oh, fired. Yeah. Oh. I just like my my heart goes out to like everything that's going on at uh, Warner Discovery right now. Yeah. The huge um, turnover that's been happening at Netflix recently, and it's just like. But, you know, it's like I'm working with an exec on a project now who used to be at Netflix and, you know, now has landed at this new studio. And so, yeah, it's just the, the circle of life continues. Yeah. So while, it, while it's very frustrating and should make <laughs> all writers at least, you know, get some perspective, all prose writers, excuse me. Um, one thing I, I still don't understand, even though I can't talk about anything, I'm I'm like embroiled in it um uh, what are do you do, can you take us through the various steps of say an option okay so it's like when people say someone's bought an option and they're gonna tie a name to it like george martin or james cameron or steven spielberg yeah yeah, yeah. that's basically they gave the author some money and then they said maybe this thing will happen and we'll tie a name to it to make it sound good but yeah <laughs> they're putting together the team or oh the team yes oh, what are you, yeah. and so I, I know i know that level and i have not i'm not fooling myself on any of it but i do know what they say as cameron said they do like to meet and they do like to not say nice things um they do like to compliment you which feels great yeah but compliments yeah. you know don't you, that they don't come with something you can take to the bank and pay your bills with. Um, yeah, one of my co my grad school friends said one time, it's like you can starve to death on praise in this town. Yeah. Like you know, there are a lot of people, you know, a lot of talented people who you know for whatever reason just don't have professional careers. But it doesn't mean you're not a good writer. Yeah. Um, so so oh, we we can you walk mm -hmm. us through that process of of what. If somebody said ha had Hollywood interested in their rights, mm -hmm. what are the steps? Where does it go? Okay. Well, if you have, say you've been approached and it's like, this is an option and they're going to pay you, you know, some thousand dollars for hopefully they're paying you money for this option. Uh, they or else might... you should not sign the contract. They better be, Margaret. They you better be. You will also, I feel like we're seeing more called shopping agreements. We are. Our we hate them, Margaret. We hate them. Okay, okay, wait. Is anything made from cold shopping agreements? Is what? Yeah. Is anything, is anything actually made from cold shopping agreements? Um, I mean, sure. My agent has seen them done okay. some shopping agreements. Yeah. Okay. It, it does happen. So, so the, explain yeah. to us what cold shopping agreements are. Okay. I... I just usually hear it referred to as a shopping agreement, um, but cold or warm or what have you. It's um, all terrible. Terrible it, shopping agreement. I mean, the one advantage to... The one advantage that an author has on the shopping agreement is what an option is, is um, you are optioning your rights for a set period to, a to say, a producer or a produ production company, and you're like, okay, for... $10,000, just to pull a number out of thin air, uh, we are going to op, you know, take the right to option. We have the option of turning this into a TV show. 
And if you're working with a production company, usually what that means is they are spending that option period bringing someone on board to write the pilot, taking it out to networks, shopping it around, basically trying to put together that sort of thing so that they can get the yes that's going to be a studio or a network. And they're the people with a ton of money who are going to actually make a show. And at that point, um, all the things, because an option is actually, it's a pretty robust sort of thing because Mm -hmm. in that contract, you agree to, if we sell to a broadcast network, if we sell to a streamer, if we sell to a basic cable thing, like titles, money, all of that is set. And that means that once that's set, the producer, you know, they take it to Netflix. Netflix says, yes, we want to make this. And it's great. And then the option activates and, you know, and whatever was agreed to in those initial negotiations, that's what everybody's got. The first the one, step. The f- yeah, the first step of your option, right. you know, and then if you make it to air, you know, all those other things. But that contract has already been agreed to. So there's no negotiation as far as the author is concerned right. at that point, you know, until you get to greater steps or renewals, you know, when you run for years and years and all that fun stuff. The potential, and it is very much a thing on the shopping agreement, is generally the production company is not giving you any money up front. But when they make the deal with the studio, then you are making your deal directly with the studio. So you are making the deal with the person you're actually dealing with and not the, uh, you know, you're sort of saying, well, you know, the option you're doing all of your potentialies on the shopping agreement. They're like, okay, we sold it to Netflix. And then your agent goes in and they try to, you know, they try to squeeze Netflix for every red cent that they can manage. Um, But they're making that with Netflix and potentially if you and Netflix can't come to an agreement, then the entire thing falls apart because now the producer doesn't have your, you know, they don't have the underlying IP anymore. So you can potentially get a better deal when you're negotiating with someone who is actually making the show, as opposed to the hypothetical deal of if we make the show, this is what we'll pay you. Um, But the hypothetical deal will pay out not out out but when someone buys your option and it's not a shopping agreement it they, they send you the money i mean and then they I go off and do blame, their thing i i don't blame any author who's like no i want if you want to shop this around you option it and then you have the option money as opposed to the you know it's like in any case in both cases you're going to get paid it's just when you do that negotiation and you just you have more leverage in the negotiation with people who want to make your show. Um, Not that, yeah. Did that make any sense at all? It did. And actually you're, you've made the, the only positive argument for shopping agreement, but I would, that's one I've heard. I sound like convinced and this is why um, in that I have said to people who came back to me and said, I want a shopping agreement. um, I could say to them, you know what? I'll tell you if I ever option this, but in the meantime, you are free to, Go, go find some money. I, right. I love you. You're great. I think we'd work great together. Go find some money. I'll let you know if I've option. And it sucks for them, right? Because, yeah, you do all this work. We're ready to go. But then it would suck for me, too, to have it something that some shopping. That someone says, oh, I have $20,000 or $100,000 and we're ready to go. We're going to go straight to development. So it's like I, I feel like there's, there's ways to negotiate that as well. Yeah, yeah. 
For sure. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, like I sat down because like I was seeing more shopping agreements, kind of like mm-hmm. other friends talking about them, knowing about them on, on the side and just being like, well, why, what advantage would there ever be to uh-huh. the shopping agreement? And I think it is that if it does, you've got the leverage of, you know, you can hold out for more once you serve the other side has more skin in the game. Uh, so when you're negotiating with the studio and you're like, well, if I don't get X, Y, or Z, I'm going to walk. Your producers are very motivated to go to the studio and be like, please give Cameron everything she wants because we, none of us we want all want to get paid. Because <laughs> we all want to get it made. Yeah. Whereas opposed to if you play hardball at the option stage, it's like, well, this is kind of difficult. We'll go option something else. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, I think people try to sell it as, you know, those, those guys who say, hey, if I told you I could give you $100 today or $200 next year, what would you say? And then if you say $100 today, they, they, they ask you all sorts of questions, but they don't actually listen to the answers. Like, I, I'm strapped for cash. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. Or, you know, I've got a bill due. I would really appreciate that $100 no, now. You're going to be in two years. Yeah. But it's like, if the, the, but the, what they're saying is you guarantee the $200 next year. With the shopping agreement, that sounds like what they're saying, except there's no guarantee. There is no guarantee. So yeah. when, when someone comes to you with an option to to do all of this admittedly less aggressive contracting, I still think it's the best idea because it's, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's actually money. <laughs> it actually occurs while the other one... <laughs> May never do it's so. Free money for us, yeah. yeah you, you go to the grocery store and you go, no, they're shopping in agreement. This is all. This will all be paid for later. I promise. Excuse me, sir. I have a shopping agreement. Can I please get this car off your lot? Look, it's from Hollywood. So they're going to pitch to Warner Brothers tomorrow. It absolutely is, but I think that sort of ties into something Cameron, you and I were talking about before we went on air, and that it ties into, like, what do you want out of your interactions with Hollywood? Like, if the good point of Hollywood for you, it's like, look, I want someone, I I would like some option money. Ideally, this will show will eventually get made, and I will get a little bit of cash for having the underlying, you know, having created the underlying story. And then, you know, I'm going to sell a boatload of books because it's going to be super popular and everyone's going to read the books. And that's my back end on it. If, you know, if maybe you're looking to, I would like to transition to write, you know, novels, but also write for TV. You know, in that case, if a producer comes to you and is like, look, you know, because production companies are not necessarily rolling in cash. Uh, these are Who independent is? producers. They only get paid when they get something made. And so they, it's like, look, I don't have a lot of cash for an option, but if we do a shopping agreement and one of the things that, you know, when we make this, and again, get shit in writing in your shopping agreement. But the sort of thing is like, you'll get to write a freelance episode in the first season if this ever goes to series. And I always say it's like, if you're looking to sell IP to make a career transition, mm-hmm. lobbying really hard to write the pilot might not be your best move because you want someone to write the pilot who is going to get the show picked up and made to series. And then, you know, if you're a member of that writing staff, not only are you going to get a credit out of that by the end of the season, but also you're spending time in either an actual room or a virtual room 
with a bunch of TV writers who you can hang out with and show it's like, hey, I'm good at what I do. I'm someone who's pleasant to be around. And you do all of that. I'm getting a notification. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm sorry. I should have set this up on Zoom. It's going to, I'll just set it up again when Google kills (laughs) it. I'll kill it now. Kill it. I'll kill it dead. We're coming back, people. Yeah, we're coming back. back. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. I should have seen that coming. I'm not new at this, but apparently, after the stop putting stuff, go away. Anyway, Margaret, I'm so sorry. It's, I'm just kicking myself, like, I'm a TV writer who, like, I've written things with commercial breaks. I should be able to set up a better cliff, you know, a better act out. Coming next, we're going to talk about, once you get it out of option, going into development, how? Yeah. But yeah, so you're just working with, you know, a bunch of people. It's like, oh, this is someone we'd like to work with in the future. And that's probably a better basis of making a career transition than, you know, let me rate the pilot and prove to you that I, you know, that, that I am a genius, um, which you undoubtedly are, but, you know. But, yes, are we recording her? Sorry, before we start pontificating. Are you I'm recording sorry, this? Are you are you recording this, Mer? Yes, we're, I believe we're still recording. Yes, we're still recording. Because okay. um, <laughs> I'm not no, saying uh, time. <laughs> Damn it, we're going to record. Um, but no, I mean, that is a good point. And again, having coming from, again, like the, my corporate writing background, Every you can say I'm a writer and oh I'm a novelist I can write a blog post you cannot fucking write a blog post let me tell you because I have seen blog posts from people who write novels let alone a screenplay um, they are completely different modes and I think a lot of people just assume oh you're a writer you can write anything you precious little bird and it's bullshit every single <laughs> one of those things is a completely different completely different mode it's true. I, I have tried to write. I am a novelist, and I'm like I, I could, you know, again, I write short videos and shit for corporate stuff. But I know my my heart is in novels. I love my description. I love my world building. Um, I screenwriting, exceptional screenwriting, is absolutely a completely different wheelhouse, and it takes time yeah. to learn that skill, just like it does to write an award winning blog post. <laughs> um, blog all those things are different. Award-winning. Yeah. No, no, no. I was about to ask if they did, and then I realized you totally did win an award for a blog post. So I I'll just totally shut up. did, Mer. Yep. Yeah, but no, it and it is like I think the skills are very transferable. Like you know, having yeah. a background in fiction writing is an asset to you know figuring out being a screenwriter. It's you know better than starting cold. But there are still skills to learn, and certainly vice versa, as you know, Mer can probably speak to on the book burners side, which was. You know my graduate uh, fiction writing course. You, 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 you were fine. I think the biggest differences among us had to do with tone, and that was we had two literary people and two people who were more interested in humor, and the 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 line was clearly drawn. The only surprise in that project was the fact that the literary guy got a chance to write sci-fi and went wild. Oh my god! Dude. Very excited. <laughs> And he wrote great. He did great, like horror. But and we were just like, "Are you serious? You don't write this regularly?" But yeah, it's like Margaret and I were writing fun stuff. And yeah, yeah, we still like you know do conflict and shit. We're we're professionals, but you know we were not as literary as our compatriots in that first season. 
But mm-hmm. no, I did not have that feeling of, oh my god, a screenwriter. <laughs> Tell us the color of his shirt, for God's sake. No, I didn't do that. I hate having to decide what color shirts people are wearing. <laughs> that's someone else's decision, god damn it. I god know. damn it, that's a wardrobe thing and I do not, I stay in my lane. Like, was it was even a transition when I went from writing live action to writing for animation where I learned that, like, if we had an action scene on the middleman or Eureka or something like that, you could just sort of say, it's like, they get into a big fight and this is what happens and this is the thing. And in animation, you really have to, you have to step it out. It's much more blow by blow. And in part, that's because when your script gets sent to the uh, storyboard artists, they get assi- their assignment comes by number of pages. And if you've taken that much page to write a huge fight scene, that is a crap ton of work for them. Like they have to do a lot of boards for that. So you want your page count to be more commensurate with the sort of art load that you're putting in there. And writing for puppets, also slightly different, it turns out. Also slightly different, yeah. Um, What else was I thinking of? Writing for, there was something else. But it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, that was a big thing for me. Uh, Just writing for video, writing for radio ads. Oh, yeah. Those long, flowy sentences, right? Well, we'll just da-da-da-da. And then you have to get, (gasps) take a breath. (laughs) I I had my first call, right? It's a tiny, I was a new baby writer. Had my mm-hmm. first call with you know, the talent for a radio thing, and he's just like, you know, taking the breath. And I'm like, oh shit, I have to write like these concise, you know, sentences that they can actually get out of this stuff. You have to write a certain word count because it's a certain number of pages, you know, a certain amount of time yeah. on the air. Um, it's just extremely different. You're thinking about much different things than you do with any other type of you know, media. Yeah, learning how to not solve dialogue problems by just throwing more words at it is like that. That has been like I feel like that's been an embarrassingly recent level up for me. Just I'm sorry. Up. I'm sorry. Can you say throw more words at it? You mean more words in dialogue or more words in script guidance or what? No, like like in the actual line. Like this line isn't working, so I'll add more more words to it so oh. that the intent will be more clear, or so it'll play, or it'll be like and like much more frequently. If a line isn't playing, it's because it's too long rather than it being too short. Um. Yeah, I'm working on an audio drama right now. If you could like just just oh, like right. let's let's stop the podcast entirely and you walk me through <laughs> my problems I'm having because I was like going through today. I'm like, yeah, that's not clear. I'm gonna add like three more words there and yeah, well, because that's the way it works in prose, right? You put in more words, but like finding finding that conciseness, finding something that will sit in an actor's mouth. One of the weirdly unique challenges to when I was working on the Nebula Awards ceremony is most presenters would just, you know, write their own thing. But, you know, if we had like, you know, Adam Savage is not writing his own script. Um, you know, I'm sure he could, but it's sort of like the, no, you're doing this thing and we're going to write a script for you. And it was the, thank God I've spent hundreds of hours of my life watching Mythbusters I'm like, yes. no, I can write it so it sounds like the way that Adam talks. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I will ask one of the questions I have for Margaret then, which is, uh, again, 
this goes back to the many conversations we all have about, you know, with Hollywood and how is it again? And you've talked about, I give my heart to these projects and then they get killed and my heart is staked and I want to die. Yeah. How does everyone in Hollywood, and I think it's the sun, but how does everyone in Hollywood stay so optimistic and like keep going and still have the emotional, you know, um, ability to have a project of their heart after seeing so many projects of their heart that have fallen along the wayside? Yeah. Well, I mean, in fairness, a lot of people in Hollywood are also very bitter and unpleasant. <laughs> So thank God, thank God. It's good to hear. I mean, good company then. All right. Yeah. Oh no, no, totally. It it can be a completely demoralizing business. And when I was starting out, I always hated the people who would like come to talk to a bunch of film school students and be like, "Hollywood's terrible. You should all leave." And I'm like, "Yeah, Bucko. Why aren't you doing something else? Like, you know, screw you." Um, but it was like, um, when I was a early in my career, I got like my first job on the middleman. I wrote a freelance episode of that show, but my official job, I was the writer's assistant and it was a huge, it was my first job in television. It was a tremendous opportunity. It was my postgraduate seminar in how to be a TV writer. I got so much out of it. Uh, and then that show got canceled after its first season and so i didn't get promoted to staff writer after that because there's no show to be promoted on but one of the writers went on to another show and they needed a writer's assistant was like oh we had this great one on my last show you should totally hire her i go out to meet them we were going out to new york and i owned a winter coat and they hired me um <laughs> i swear to god i think that was the moment i nailed the job interview no i completely understand that yeah know, you never know what's going to be y'all have the right outfit it was like Hera, do you, yeah. new york in winter and i said i went to college in massachusetts i own a winter coat and like after that everything just sort of relaxed i'm like i think i have this job um, and nice. indeed I did. And that show got canceled after 10 episodes. And so, you know, and then, uh, and then day one happened and that show got canceled after no episodes. And then I got brought on to, I had met Amy Berg through mutual friends and they needed a new writer's assistant on Eureka. And it's like, great. It's not a first season show. Like once you're past that hurdle, like your chances of getting renewed are much better. Um, but I came in in like season four and it's like, oh man, like six people need to die for me to, for like there to be a slot <laughs> to promote me. So to wait, this is a monarchy? <laughs> it's a monarchy? It kind of, I mean, writers room are very hierarchical <laughs> and so like there's definitely a ladder and I'm looking like, who do you owe favors to? The room's already big, you know, and it's just sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm sitting there at my computer also sharpening my knives, but, you no, know, there's... Of course some... not. Of course not. No, no. It's certainly just saying, hey, you know, some bad happened. Hey, be good for me. You know, somebody got, a, you know, hopefully somebody, you know, an upper level yeah. sells a show and takes half yeah. the... Half hey, the yeah, exactly. And Everyone that gets promoted. Great. Hooray. But, like, by that time, I was, like, by the time I was doing my fifth season on my fourth show in a little less than three years, and it's, like, mm. I I have more on-set experience than mid-level producers who I am junior to on this show. I have been on more shows 
you know, period than, you know, upper level people who are running this show. And like, I was just reaching the point where I was, I was like, I was frustrated. I, you know, it's like, I just hang in there long enough. And I'm like, how long do I have to uh-huh. hang in there for this? Mm-hmm. And I was getting, I was getting frustrated. I was getting burned out. Cause like I'd sort of all the great learning I had done on those first couple of shows. It's like, no, no, I, I know how this works now. This is no longer a, you know, oh, kid, why don't you learn how to do this? It's like, I, I've done that. I wish you appreciated that fact, but my title is assistant, so not so much, maybe. Um, Eureka, I don't mean to throw shade at it. There are many <laughs> lovely people on that show. I was just reaching the point where it's like, I... Oh, I definitely, yeah. It, it was turning me into an unpleasant person. And the smart thing that I did at that point was I'm like, this this could be the end of my career, but the next time I'm in a writer's room, I need to be a writer in it. I can't keep being an assistant. And, you know, the next show could have been the one where I got my promotion. You start climbing the ladder the way the TV writer career is supposed to work. Could have been the next show you know, could have been another eight, 10 years. Like there's no way to know, but like, like if I had a bitter writers, this is like, I know that it starts to show at a certain point, like I wouldn't promote that person. And, uh, and so, yeah, I had to do these, like, no, I'm not really doing writers assistant jobs anymore. I feel like I have learned what I can. And, uh, and after that was when Lizzie Bennett came along. And, uh, then also in that era was book burners and the, uh, the truly hard to explain part of Margaret's career path that, you know, looking backwards, it's all very logical how I got to where I am today. At the time, it was a lot of like, I, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if a bus ever comes along this road. Like, am I in a boat in a fog bank waiting for a bus? It just like all the metaphors were incredibly mixed and none of them were auspicious. Um, so I finally remembered my question, and it has specifically to do with plot on script writing. Because what what reminded me was the fact that you were talking about how you need to reduce the number of words rather than increase. And I suffer from, maybe I've just had too many notes of what the hell are you talking about, but I suffer from feeling that people are not going to understand what I talk about, so I'm just going to cover all the bases. Yeah. And then I'm thinking about... Um, have you seen Schitt's Creek? Not really. Okay. Well, there's a scene where um, there's a very new relationship. And one, there's, like, one of the guys living in a motel. And there's a murder at the motel. No, no, there's a death. It's not that exciting. There's a death at the motel. And someone says, we need your room because there's a death in this room. And so he goes to his new, like, romance. And he's like, "We need. I, I need to stay at your place. And the guy thinks that they're going to be, that this is a this is a sex thing. And he's like, I'm not ready for that yet. And that is the conflict for the episode. Mm-hmm. And then once everybody knows all the things that everybody's supposed to know, and it's all settled, I don't know where the guy stayed that night. And this <laughs> bothers me. Because there's still the dead body. There's still this other conflict. And I'm like... Is this me? Is this sloppy writing on their part? Is it like, I'm supposed to know that the conflict is the fact that you've got an experienced guy and a non-experienced guy, and they're trying to, like, go through their new relationship, and it's that conflict. But where's he sleeping? I don't know! And and I don't know if, 
is it me or is it them? I mean, I love that this is Mer's question. Yeah, I really want to know. No, Look, I no, over-explain things. I want to know if I worry that the conflict I'll is something different. I mean, I'll also say it's very possible that there was a line or a scene at some point that clarified that question that got cut that got cut at some point. Um, yeah. There is a certain amount of, and it varies. Right, like I feel like in film, there's a lot more of letting you kind of fill in the gaps, like the same way the the gutter between frames works yeah. on a comic page. In in television, we do have an awareness that you're probably like doing the dishes or looking at your phone or something else. Um, especially in kids' TV, most things do get said aloud. There's not a ton of like characters don't exchange looks with each other in children's television because your audience isn't necessarily like they're not film literate yet. So you have to tell them what's going on or they're not going to know. And, you know, laundry holding TV, like if there's an important clue that is important to understand what's going on, someone's going to say it out loud as well as having a close up on it just to make sure that that lands because, you know, someone at best, someone's playing like 85% attention to what's going on on the screen. Um, but, like, there's also the, it could have been that, like, it's been through enough drafts and everybody who was working on that episode knew where he spent the night, so it didn't feel like an important piece of information. Um, it could be, yeah, I mean, I always get bothered when people on TV shows get into a car and they don't fasten their seatbelt, and it's, like, I, I know, like, production-wise, like, it's, like, it's a long thing. You have, it's like, it's a weird action. It messes with continuity. It's, you know, wrinkling the clothes, but I'm like, buckle your seatbelt. Like every time I get into a car, what's the first thing I do? I buckle the seatbelt and it feels weird to see these people who just get into cars and don't buckle seatbelts. It's like they live in this weird parallel universe. So I have no idea if it's a you thing or a them thing, but it's also, there's so many moving pieces. Um, and sometimes, like, you'll be in production and you have a pivotal scene that you don't have time to shoot or you lose a location uh, or you lose, an, you lose a guest star and you have to, like, on the fly, have to come up with a new thing that's going to cover all of your bases and make it work. And hopefully it does. And hopefully if it, you know, hopefully if there are gaps, they're like, well, at least hopefully they'll make it to the refrigerator after they watch the episode before they're going like, where did he spend the night anyway? Like, it's, so, so basically, I think one of the another of the hardest things for, for prose writers to understand about Hollywood is just the fact that there's so many moving pieces that whatever you wrote or whatever you intended could be completely tossed out once it you see it. And that's another thing you have to come to terms with. Well, when we worked on book burners, you and some other people on the team would come and like, Margaret, you're, you're so strong on structure. And like, I don't think of myself as intuitively a structuralist. Um, you know, it's like, I, I like a good scene. I like a moment. But television and film writing is so structure dependent. And I started thinking about like, well, you know, it's like I'm good at structure because I force myself to concentrate on it a lot. Um. In all due modesty, I'm quite good at structure because I've spent a lot of time working on it. 
Um, Can we say say you're Emmy Award winning? We can say that, right? I technically I've worked for Emmy Award winning projects would be. You've worked for Emmy Award Emmy Awarding projects. So I'm just gonna say, just backing up what you said. Yes, you're very good at what you do. So, but I think the reason why screenwriting and television writing why it is so structurally dependent is like that's the thing that's going to survive like you can have great dialogue and it's a wonderful medium for that but you know the cast might decide that they like it when they say it this way better and depending on who that cast member is that may or may not stick um so it's like you know locations are going to change production constraints are going to you know are going to mean you have to change these three other things like the story structure like if you can keep that solid the other bits that kind of like might be falling off around the edges as long as there's nothing fundamentally broken your story still works and you can kind of get away with the magic trick so i would say yeah likely that was i mean it's not outside the realm of possibility that answering that question did just fall off the radar, but it's like, but the it was probably one of those things. Basically worked, so we're gonna let that go. Okay. Yeah, we are coming close to two hours. Y'all have been um, very awesome. Yes, yes. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell us about? You know, can you sum up everything you know about Hollywood that we haven't talked about in like the next couple of seconds, or? Uh, anytime <laughs> I have encountered someone in Hollywood who is not behaving well or not treating me well, 90 plus percent of the time, I ask myself, could this be explained by this person feeling wildly insecure right now? And the answer is almost always yes. Uh, and I think that just explains a lot of weirdness in Hollywood that Nobody knows when their next job is coming from. Nobody knows what's going to happen and what's not. And even if they are outwardly secure, they might not feel that way. And that explains a lot of people's strange behavior. That is fascinating. Thank you, Margaret. Cameron, tell us about yourself, because these people have never seen you before. They don't know who I am. No, Margaret, I just want to say it was a joy to talk to you. I'm so glad we had you on the show. Um, again, we bitch about this with you privately, but it was nice to, you know, share these insights. It's nice <laughs> so, to be here. I really enjoyed it. I just always talking, talking, talk, you know, like, there's a reason. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Oh, so okay. it's good to know. But again, appreciate your time. Uh, really love the conversation. Lovely to speak with you. Um, but yeah, I am Cameron Hurley. I write shit. You can, of course, find me at CameronHurley.com. Um, I have a podcast as well, Get to Work Hurley, uh, where I also interview wonderful guests like Margaret. Um, and Murr, in fact, Murr. Right. I'm a recent. I live my one with Murr, so uh, just a delight. So thank you, uh, yeah, again for being on here, and thank you, Murr, for having me co-host again. Yeah, Margaret, thank you so much for your time and your awesome wisdom. And Cameron, thank you again for helping out. Uh, ditch diggers, we would not be where we are without you. One ditch at a time. That's right. <laughs> one ditch at a time. If you take away anything, friends, dig one ditch at a time. <laughs> This podcast was produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Music provided by Devo Spice, devospice.com. Ditch Diggers! This is a free podcast brought to you by the kindness of our patrons. If you would like to also be kind and a patron, 
go to patreon.com slash mightymurr.